So here's the thing. When I try and tell everybody, you know, because I, I grew up in Philadelphia, and my first boyfriend's father was a ward leader who used to go out with a roll of cash and buy all the votes every election. So, you know, there's an old tradition in America voting fraud. And what I tell everybody is neither one of these candidates would have been the candidate without the voting fraud to begin with. So, you know, we're in a funny position, but I've never seen the voting fraud as blatant. And I think to a certain extent, you know, it's interesting they could not have stopped a Trump landslide without COVID-19. So one question I have is how much of the, because t- I thought they would do this after the election, how much of the timing of the health care op is basically designed to make sure they don't get a populist president? Not that Trump isn't, you know, it's hard for me to think of Donald Trump as a populist because he's very much on board for the pro-centralization team, but he's, um, as Michael Moore has said, he's the American people's way of saying F you to the, to the leadership. So I think it was very important to them to get rid of Trump, which they're trying to do. The problem is they've used massive voter fraud to do it and, but they've used the fraud in a way that it's obvious that the fraud is off the charts. And it's almost as though, you know, they, they're turning to the, the population which they're trying to turn into a cult and saying, you have to pretend this guy is the president, even though you know He's not. <laughs> so, so, you know, we have a fake virus and a magic virus and a fake president and a magic political system. And, it's, you know, it really is getting very cult-like. It's the only thing I can say. Yeah, it's almost like a, a switch was flicked this year and we're in bizarre world, right? <laughs> um, so we've been in bizarre world from the minute they started to, to steal the money. We moved into a bizarre world, and I think, you know, the only difference is now, as they moved all the money and the official reality moved away from reality even further and further, you know, that's part and parcel of the secrecy, many people thought they could stay on the middle of the road. And now what's clear is, you know, you have to go with the cult or you have to go with truth. The middle of the road is is going away. And so everybody has to choose which they want. Let's go to the riots. Okay, so so when the riots began and the leadership took the position that you couldn't go to church because of the danger of the magic virus, but you could go to the riots and protests, <laughs> my team and I started to look at the riots. And so we first we made if you if you come into Solari there's a database called COVID nineteen and uh I think it's COVID nineteen riots and Fed. So the first thing we did is we looked at the state and we looked at the cities and whether the governor was Democrat or Republican, and then what the COVID cases and deaths were. And then we said, Okay, we're gonna check a box called riots where riots have been. So we started to look at the patterns of the riots vis-a-vis the machine, political machine control and sort of the COVID magic virus op. And there was something wrong when I was looking at the data and I could feel, you know, I'm a very intuitive person. I was saying, there's something, there's something here. So I said to the wonderful teammate who was building this, I said, do me a favor. I want you to put a box called the Federal Reserve and I want you to check the box there are 12 banks, 
one headquarters, and then the branches for a total of 37 locations. I want you to check the box wherever, in, in any city where we have a branch or a bank or the headquarters, I want a check. And what we discovered is 34 of the 37 bank, bank locations have riots. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's a pattern. <laughs> There's something here. Let's drill down. So we started with Minneapolis, and uh, we said, let's take the data of all the buildings that were harmed or burnt or businesses, and we'll map it. You know, we'll do a GIS software, and we'll map where these businesses were and how close they were to the Federal Reserve Bank. And so the first one we did, there's a there's a street going across Minneapolis called Lake. And we mapped them. And one of the things we did when we mapped them was we drew pictures of where the opportunity zones were. Do you know what an opportunity zone is? An opportunity zone is a tax shelter mechanism created in 2018 to help the tech billionaires as they sold their stock avoid capital gains. So you can, if you're Jeff Bezos, who sold $10 billion of stock this year, if you were to roll over your proceeds into opportunity zone investments and handle it in a certain way, you could avoid all capital gains tax. So this is fantastically profitable. Now, if you look at the riots, when I first saw how all the buildings and businesses destroyed along Lake Street, we're right at the bottom of the opportunity. I started to laugh and I said, you know, I was Assistant Secretary of Housing. That's not a riot pattern. That's a real estate acquisition plan. So what are you saying? It's to, it's to cheapen the prices in the city? So, so I have a thriving series of small businesses, a lot owned by African American and Hispanics along a particular boulevard in the Opportunity Zone. If first I declare the businesses non-essential and shut them down, right? Magic virus. So first I declare them non-essential, so now they're in real trouble, right? Because they can't do their business. And then I have riots and burn and damage them, right? If I was really clever, I'd pull their insurance right before I did it. I don't know what the case was, but we'll see. So now their business is shut down. They're now hung on their debt, right? Whether their mortgage or their credit card. But even worse, now their building has been damaged. And of course, insurance doesn't cover all the repairs and fixing, right? So needless to say, it's going to be a lot easier and cheaper for me to go in and buy up all those buildings, right? Voila. It's called disaster capitalism. So we then mapped, we did Minneapolis, then we mapped uh, Kenosha, then Portland, and now we're doing a place in Ohio. And the, the patterns we're seeing, if you look at the clusters of where the damage is, just speaking as Assistant Secretary of Housing, those are, in my opinion, real estate acquisition plans completely, you know, especially when they come on top of declaring all those small businesses not essential and shutting them down or restricting them. You know, you, I'm sure you got a lot of restaurants in there. Yeah. So, for example, if you look at San Francisco, 49% of the businesses in San Francisco are expected to be out of business by the end of the year. Do you know how much real estate you're going to be able to pick up cheap on this? It's gonna, it's phenomenal. 
Now, when you realize that if they sell their tech stocks high, they can pick it up really cheap, what's important to understand is this makes the economics of building the smart grid out in the Fed cities. Remember, I said 34 of 37 cities have a Fed banker branch. So this makes building out the smart smart grid around the Fed banks much cheaper, which I'm assuming you want to do if you're going to come out with a crypto system. Okay. Okay, so Mr. Global is now coming to the point where... Can you explain who's Mr. Global? Yeah, so Mr. Global is my nickname for the committee that runs the world. The defining characteristic of life on planet Earth is our real global governance system is a mystery. And think about it. It's phenomenal we live on a planet and we don't demand to know how our governance system really works. But instead it's a secret. So, you know, I have a lot of high-octane conjecture, as Dr. Fur would say about who and what that is, but for now we'll call it Mr. Global. So Mr. Global is now implementing robotics. That's one of the new technologies that's really starting to make an enormous difference. So can you label that? That's okay, so, so, so here's our robot and here's our human. And of course the question for Mr. Global is, you know, which is more efficient doing what? In other words, if I'm supposed to manage the planet and all the natural resources and harvest it to my benefit and make sure, you know, my risk is reduced, how much do I want to use robots for and how much do I want to do, do humans for? Now, the brilliance of hooking everybody into the cloud with a crypt system, a crypto system, is with AI and software, I can have the humans teach the robots through the AI and software how to do all their jobs. And in fact, I was at the Aspen Institute in 2017, and I was having a discussion with with a venture capitalist, you know, sort of billionaire type, and he looked at me with these amazingly dead eyes, and he said, "Look, honey, you know, I can I can take every company completely automate it with with software and robotics, and and fire all the humans. We don't need them anymore." I've never talked to anybody who didn't understand the riot part. Because uh-huh. that's a very typical old game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in poor neighborhoods. Yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, so uh, do you want me to continue with this? So we have, we have the Mr. Global at the top. We have the database and software systems using artificial intelligence. Uh, a very important part of this now is the satellite system that's being put up in the orbital platform. And using telecommunications and digital technology, you have the ability 24-7 to track and monitor both your humans and your robots. And the question for Mr. Global is, what's more efficient? If I can do everything with robots, then what do I do with the humans? I don't need them anymore. So are we seeing build a kind of human farming or something? So they would describe it as resource management. And if you look at the technocracy and the writing about technocracy, so many of us describe we're moving from a, you know, whatever systems we use now to a technocracy. In a technocracy, they they view, you have two different visions of the world. My vision of the world 
is that humans are sovereign individuals whose freedom comes by divine authority. That is what the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution all revolve around. The image of a, of a sovereign individual as, as someone um, who is free by divine authority. In the vision of technocracy, a human is a natural resource like a oil deposit and to be used as such. So they're not a sovereign individual, they're labor, and they are either more efficient or less efficient than a robot at different functions. In other words, what I'm saying is Mr. Global views the human race like livestock, not someone with which they share empathy and, you know, they don't view us as the same species as them. And in fact, with a lot of the biotechnology, they figure they're going to live much longer lives than we do and live very differently than we do. So there's been a real, one of the, one of the challenges with the secrecy as one group becomes more and more technologically advanced, they separate culturally, legally, financially from all the other groups. In other words, they have literally broken away and created a separate civilization. They don't think of themselves as part of our civilization anymore. And who is they? Well, that's the great mystery, and that's why I call this group Mr. Global. And I, you know, my personal experiences with many different people in that group and factions, but ultimately I can't tell you who really controls. What I will tell you is the planet is run by force. And so ultimately the question is who is the, who is the most powerful gun? And that comes down to space. Who has the most powerful space presence, space weapons, as well as who controls the sea lanes? So traditionally, control behind the reserve currency came from control of the sea lanes. But then as we've moved into space, it's, it's now become control of both the sea lanes and the satellite lanes. And the question is, who controls what and who has what weapons? One of the reasons you've seen a very interesting discussion in the United States for the last two years is Trump has been very verbal about space force and what is possible in space, and he'll make these allusions to our magical weapons in space, at which point the generals look at him very disapproving, like, don't talk about that. So the answer is we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is part of the competition right now between China and America is that the player who has the most dominant position in space has the power to control the whole planet. So, so the Chinese have a, um, a system called the social credit system and they're very much tying their financial transactions and different abilities to travel and do other things to your behavior. And, um, uh, you know, we've seen different TV shows talk about these kinds of systems. But you're talking about a world where, and we see it in China, where, um, most people are under 24-7 surveillance and then their financial incentives and their financial powers relate to how well behaved they are. And I would describe it essentially as a, as a slavery system because there's no personal freedom. So to a certain extent, what technocracy will do is move us to a similar kind of system as the Chinese social credit system.
where if you misbehave, you can be punished. Right. So, so you know, you so, so in theory, you have to get a certain kind of job to make a certain kind of money. Uh, in the current system, in the new system, you have to uh, work for a certain kind of company and achieve a certain kind of prominence to be allowed to to move more than 10 miles from your home or to be allowed to fly. So there'll be a pecking order that relates to your freedoms to either travel or roam um, or how much sort of access you have to resources. So how much money you can make. But remember, you're you're going into a system where if they believe they can automate everything with robotic software and AI, it's going to be that much harder for you to share in the benefits and the wealth of the system because the, the central group can extract so much more. In other words, they have a one-way mirror. They can see everything you do. You can't even see who they are. Yeah. Okay. What's very important to understand about what is happening is that the majority of people have been, if, if we're talking about a transhumanist system or, you know, in short, a slavery system, most of us have been supporting it and financing it and building it. So when I look at all the big pharma executives, why are they building a system where their own children or grandchildren will be slaves? Why are the central banks doing it? Why did they think, you know, there, there's a theory in America for many years among the sort of money classes that if I make enough money, I can get a waiver. I can get out of it. I can eat organic food, not eat the GMOs, and my grandkids, you know, won't have to take vaccines. But if you look at who's implementing all these different activities, you know, we're building our own slavery system, and that means we have the power to stop. In other words, we don't have to finance the companies that are doing this. We don't have to work for the companies that are doing this. And in fact, we don't even have to pay our taxes because the government is breaking all the laws related to financial management. We have the ability to hold them accountable. So we're building the prison and we're financing the prison and that gives us the power to stop. And that's why it's so important that we see where the system is going. There will be no exceptions. So what is the solution? Solution is number one, bring transparency to what's happening, understand where the system is going, and then stop building it. You know, if, if you work for Big Pharma and you're building this, stop. You know, go find something else to do, like build local fresh food systems so you will have food. Um, you know, so stop financing it. Um, begin the conversation of where this is going and, more importantly, where we want to go. Because we're going to have to rebuild the economy bottom-up if we don't want to be highly centralized. So this comes down to, you know, I call it coming clean. Once upon a time, I was in Washington. I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase private banking account. And in the meantime, I was engaged in 12 different tracks of litigation, litigating with the people who were trying to engineer the housing bubble. I was trying to stop the housing bubble from happening. And I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan 
Chase personal banking account, I realized, why am I banking at the bank that's doing this criminality, that's destroying communities, that's doing predatory lending? And I said, you know, I need to come clean. I need to stop banking there. So, you know, if tomorrow everybody woke up in America and stopped banking at J.P. Morgan Chase and said, you know something, y'all are criminals, we want nothing to do with you, we're out, and went to a local credit union or community bank, it would be a revolution. It would be a, a, a total revolution. If 20 women turned to big farm executives and said, you know something, you're disgusting, no sex, bye, out the door, be a revolution. So we have the power to change this, but we're all going to have to come clean because almost all of us are complicit in implementing this. It's not them, it's us. The solution is for every one of us to come clean. You're either for the transhumanist slavery system or you're for, for a human system. But if you're for a human system, then you're going to have to find a way to make money you know, and, 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 and engage socially in a human system and stop building a, a transhuman system. Well, the first thing you have to see is you have to get a good map. In other words, you can't navigate this unless you can see the transhumanist system that is being built and who's building it. But if you're involved with, so let's go back to the pillars. Okay. Don't help the military build Operation Warp Speed. Okay. Don't help the tech guys figure out how to inject nanoparticles into your body and hook them up to the cloud. Don't help big pharma, you know, make, make injections which are poisoning American children to death. Don't help big ag make, grow GMO food that is poisoning America to death. Don't help the government institute corrupt, you know, sort of health crisis regulations that are really disaster capitalism in making the private equity guys and the billionaires rich, and on and on and on. But if you, if you, you know, I'll just be blunt. Get the state of our currencies and read it, and you'll know who's doing this. I mean, it's pretty obvious who's doing this. When he's got 325 million people, and more, and a lot of them have guns, and they don't have a lockdown yet. This is why the Second Amendment is such. A fractious issue. Most people around the world don't understand why people in America are so rabid about owning guns. And, you know, the first reason they're rabid about owning guns is they don't understand the power of mind control. <laughs> so, you know, so if I can institute total mind control, which is what the system is, you know, guns aren't that dangerous to me. But, um, you know, the leadership is to do what they want to do, it would be very, very convenient if they could bring in the guns. And you'll see if the Democrats win this election, that's the first thing they're going to try and do. Um, after making everybody wear face diapers, they're going, to, they're going to try and bring in the guns. And this is why the Republicans holding the Senate has been such a big issue. Yeah. Because they can't do it if the Republicans hold the Senate. The election is such a mess, huh? So here's the thing. What I try and tell everybody, you know, because I, I grew up in Philadelphia, and my first boyfriend's father was a ward leader who used to go out with a roll of cash and buy all the votes every election. So, you know, there's an old tradition in America voting fraud. And what I tell everybody is neither one of these candidates would have been the candidate without the voting fraud to begin with. So, 
you know, we're in a funny position, but I've never seen the voting fraud as blatant. And I think to a certain extent, you know, it's interesting. They could not have stopped a Trump landslide without COVID-19. So one question I have is how much of the, because t- I thought they would do this after the election. How much of the timing of the health care op is basically designed to make sure they don't get a populist president? Not that Trump isn't, you know, it's hard for me to think of Donald Trump as a populist because he's very much on board for the pro-centralization team, but he's, um, as Michael Moore has said, he's the American people's way of saying F you to the, to the leadership. So I think it was very important to them to get rid of Trump, which they're trying to do. The problem is they've used massive voter fraud to do it, and, but they've used the fraud in a way that it's obvious that the fraud is off the charts. And it's almost as though, you know, they, they're turning to the, the population, which they're trying to turn into a cult and saying, you have to pretend this guy is the president, even though you know he's not. <laughs> so, so, you know, we have a fake virus and a magic virus and a fake president and a magic political system. And, it's, you know, it really is getting very cult-like. It's the only thing I can say. Yeah, it's almost like a, a switch is flicked this year and we're in bizarre world, right? <laughs> um. So we've been in bizarre world. From the minute they started to to steal the money, we moved into a bizarre world. And I think, you know, the only difference is now, as they moved all the money and the official reality moved away from reality even further and further, you know, that's part and parcel of the secrecy, many people thought they could stay on the middle of the road. And now what's clear is, you know, you have to go with the cult or you have to go with truth. The middle of the road is is going away. And so everybody has to choose which they want. Let's go to the riots. Okay, so so when the riots began and the leadership took the position that you couldn't go to church because of the danger of the magic virus, but you could go to the riots and protests. <laughs> My team and I started to look at the riots. And so we, first we made, if you, if you come into Solari, there's a database called COVID-19 and, uh, I think it's COVID-19 riots and fed. So the first thing we did is we looked at the state and we looked at the cities and whether the governor was Democrat or Republican and then what the COVID cases and deaths were. And then we said, okay, we're going to check a box called riots where riots have been. So we started to look at the patterns of the riots vis-a-vis the machine, political machine control and sort of the COVID magic virus op. And there was something wrong when I was looking at the data and I could feel, you know, I'm a very intuitive person. I was saying there's something, there's something here. So I said to the wonderful teammate who was building this, I said, do me a favor. I want you to put a box called the Federal Reserve. And I want you to check the box. There are 12 banks, one headquarters, and then the branches for a total of 37 locations. I want you to check the box wherever, in in any city where we have a branch or a bank or the headquarters, I want a check. And what we discovered is, 34 of the 37 bank locations have riots. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's a pattern. (laughs) 
there's something here. Let's drill down. So we started with Minneapolis, and uh, we said, let's take the data of all the buildings that were harmed or burnt or businesses, and we'll map it. You know, we'll do a GIS software, and we'll map where these businesses were and how close they were to the Federal Reserve Bank. And so the first one we did, there's a there's a street going across Minneapolis called Lake. And we mapped them. And one of the things we did when we mapped them was we drew pictures of where the opportunity zones were. Do you know what an opportunity zone is? An opportunity zone is a tax shelter mechanism created in 2018 to help the tech billionaires as they sold their stock avoid capital gains. So you can, if you're Jeff Bezos, who sold $10 billion of stock this year, if you were to roll over your proceeds into opportunity zone investments and handle it in a certain way, you could avoid all capital gains tax. So this is fantastically profitable. Now, if you look at the riots, when I first saw how all the buildings and businesses destroyed along Lake Street were right at the bottom of the opportunity, I started to laugh and I said, you know, I was Assistant Secretary of Housing. That's not a riot pattern. That's a real estate acquisition plan. So what are you saying? It's to... It's to Cheapen the prices in the city? So, so I have a thriving series of small businesses, a lot owned by African American and Hispanics along a particular boulevard in the opportunity zone. If first I declare the businesses non-essential and shut them down, right? Magic virus. So first I declare them non-essential, so now they're in real trouble, right? Because they can't do their business. And then I have riots and burn and damage them, right? If I was really clever, I'd pull their insurance right before I did it. I don't know what the case was, but we'll see. So now their business is shut down. They're now hung on their debt, right, whether their mortgage or their credit card. But even worse, now their building has been damaged, and, of course, insurance doesn't cover all the repairs and fixing, Right. So needless to say, it's going to be a lot easier and cheaper for me to go in and buy up all those buildings, right? Voila. It's called disaster capitalism. So we then mapped, we did Minneapolis, then we mapped uh, Kenosha, then Portland, and now we're doing a place in Ohio. And the, the patterns we're seeing, if you look at the clusters of where the damage is, just speaking as Assistant Secretary of Housing, those are, in my opinion, real estate acquisition plans completely, you know, especially when they come on top of declaring all those small businesses not essential and shutting them down or restricting them. You know, you, I'm sure you got a lot of restaurants in there. Yeah. So, for example, if you look at San Francisco, 49% of the businesses in San Francisco are expected to be out of business by the end of the year. Do you know how much real estate you're going to be able to pick up cheap on this? It's going to, it's phenomenal. Now, when you realize that if they sell their tech stocks high, they can pick it up really cheap, what's important to understand is this makes the economics of building the smart grid out in the Fed cities. Remember I said 34 of 37 cities have a Fed banker branch. So this makes building out the smart smart grid around the Fed banks much cheaper, 
which I'm assuming you want to do if you're going to come out with a crypto system. Okay. Okay, so Mr. Global is now coming to the point where... And can you explain who's Mr. Global? Yeah, so Mr. Global is my nickname for the committee that runs the world. The defining characteristic of life on planet Earth is our real global governance system is a mystery. And think about it. It's phenomenal we live on a planet and we don't demand to know how our governance system really works. But instead, it's a secret. So, you know, I have a lot of high-octane conjecture, as Dr. Phil would say, about who and what that is. But for now, we'll call it Mr. Global. So Mr. Global is now implementing robotics. That's one of the new technologies that's really starting to make an enormous difference. So can you label that? That's okay, so, so, so here's our robot and here's our human. And, of course, the question for Mr. Global is, you know, which is more efficient doing what? In other words, if I'm supposed to manage the planet and all the natural resources and harvest it to my benefit and make sure, you know, my risk is reduced, how much do I want to use robots for and how much do I want to do, do humans for? Now, the brilliance of hooking everybody into the cloud with a crypt system, a crypto system, is with AI and software, I can have the humans teach the robots through the AI and software how to do all their jobs. And in fact, I was at the Aspen Institute in 2017, and I was having a discussion with with a venture capitalist, you know, sort of billionaire type, and he looked at me with these amazingly dead eyes, and he said, look, honey, you know, I can I can take every company completely automate it with with software and robotics and and fire all the humans. We don't need them anymore. I've never talked to anybody who didn't understand the riot part, because uh-huh. that's a very typical old game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you want me to continue with this? So we have we have the. Mr. Global at the top. We have the database and software systems using artificial intelligence. Uh, a very important part of this now is the satellite system that's being put up in the orbital platform. And using telecommunications and digital technology, you have the ability 24-7 to track and monitor both your humans and your robots. And the question for Mr. Global is, what's more efficient? If I can do everything with robots, then what do I do with the humans? I don't need them anymore. So are we seeing build a kind of human farming or something? So they would describe it as resource management. And if you look at the technocracy and the writing about technocracy, so many of us describe we're moving from a, you know, whatever systems we use now to a technocracy. In a technocracy, they they view, you have two different visions of the world. My vision of the world is that humans are sovereign individuals whose freedom comes by divine authority. That is what the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution all revolve around. The image of a, of a sovereign individual as, as someone um, who is free by divine authority. In the vision of technocracy, a human is a natural resource like a oil deposit. 
and to be used as such. So they're not a sovereign individual, they're labor, and they are either more efficient or less efficient than a robot at different functions. In other words, what I'm saying is Mr. Global views the human race like livestock, not someone with which they share empathy and, you know, they don't view us as the same species as them. And in fact, with a lot of the biotechnology, they figure they're going to live much longer lives than we do and live very differently than we do. So there's been a real, one of the, one of the challenges with the secrecy as one group becomes more and more technologically advanced, they separate culturally, legally, financially from all the other groups. In other words, they have literally broken away and created a separate civilization. They don't think of themselves as part of our civilization anymore. And who is they? Well, that's the great mystery, and that's why I call this group Mr. Global. And I, you know, my personal experiences with many different people in that group and factions, but ultimately I can't tell you who really controls. What I will tell you is the planet is run by force. And so ultimately the question is who is the, who is the most powerful gun? And that comes down to space. Who has the most powerful space presence, space weapons, as well as who controls the sea lanes? So traditionally, control behind the reserve currency came from control of the sea lanes. But then as we've moved into space, it's it's now become control of both the sea lanes and the satellite lanes. And the question is, who controls what and who has what weapons? One of the reasons you've seen a very interesting discussion in the United States for the last two years is Trump has been very verbal about space force and what is possible in space, and he'll make these allusions to our magical weapons in space, at which point the generals look at him very disapproving, like, don't talk about that. So the answer is we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is part of the competition right now between China and America is that the player who has the most dominant position in space has the power to control the whole planet. So, so the Chinese have a, um, a system called the social credit system and they're very much tying their financial transactions and different abilities to travel and do other things to your behavior. And, um, uh, you know, we've seen different TV shows talk about these kinds of systems. But you're talking about a world where, and we see it in China, where, um, most people are under 24-7 surveillance and then their financial incentives and their financial powers relate to how well behaved they are. And I would describe it essentially as a, as a slavery system because there's no personal freedom. So to a certain extent, what technocracy will do is move us to a similar kind of system as the Chinese social credit system. Where if you misbehave, you can be punished. Right, so, so, you know, you, so, so in theory, you have to get a certain kind of job to make a certain kind of money. Uh, in the current system, in the new system, you have to, uh, work for a certain kind of company and achieve a certain kind of prominence to be allowed to, to move more than 10 miles from your home. 
or to be allowed to fly. So there'll be a pecking order that relates to your freedoms to either travel or roam, um, or how much sort of access you have to resources. So how much money you can make. But remember, you're, you're going into a system where if they believe they can automate everything with robotic software and AI, it's going to be that much harder for you to share in the benefits and the wealth of the system because the, the central group can extract so much more. In other words, they have a one-way mirror. They can see everything you do. You can't even see who they are. Yeah. Okay. What's very important to understand about what is happening is that the majority of people have been, if, if we're talking about a transhumanist system or, you know, in short, a slavery system, most of us have been supporting it and financing it and building it. So when I look at all the big pharma executives, why are they building a system where their own children or grandchildren will be slaves? Why are the central banks doing it? Why did they think, you know, there, there's a theory in America for many years among the sort of money classes that if I make enough money, I can get a waiver. I can get out of it. I can eat organic food, not eat the GMOs, and my grandkids, you know, won't have to take vaccines. But if you look at who's implementing all these different activities, you know, we're building our own slavery system, and that means we have the power to stop. In other words, we don't have to finance the companies that are doing this. We don't have to work for the companies that are doing this. And in fact, we don't even have to pay our taxes because the government is breaking all the laws related to financial management. We have the ability to hold them accountable. So we're building the prison, and we're financing the prison, and that gives us the power to stop. And that's why it's so important that we see where the system is going. There will be no exceptions. So what is the solution? Solution is, number one, bring transparency to what's happening, understand where the system is going, and then stop building it. You know, if, if you work for Big Pharma and you're building this, stop. You know, go find something else to do, like build local fresh food systems so you will have food. Um, you know, so stop financing it. Um, begin the conversation of where this is going and, more importantly, where we want to go. Because we're going to have to rebuild the economy bottom-up if we don't want to be highly centralized. So this comes down to, you know, I call it coming clean. Once upon a time, I was in Washington. I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase private banking account. And in the meantime, I was engaged in 12 different tracks of litigation, litigating with the people who were trying to engineer the housing bubble. I was trying to stop the housing bubble from happening. And I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase personal banking account. I realized... Why am I banking at the bank that's doing this criminality, that's destroying communities, that's doing predatory lending? And I said, you know, I need to come clean. I need to stop banking there. So, you know, if tomorrow everybody woke up in America and stopped banking at J.P. Morgan Chase and said, you know something, y'all are criminals. We want nothing to do with you. We're out. 
and went to a local credit union or community bank, it would be a revolution. It would be a, a, a total revolution. If 20 women turned to big farm executives and said, you know something, you're disgusting, no sex, bye, out the door, be a revolution. So we have the power to change this, but we're all going to have to come clean because almost all of us are complicit in implementing this. It's not them, it's us. The solution is for every one of us to come clean. You're either for the transhumanist slavery system or you're for, for a human system. But if you're for a human system, then you're going to have to find a way to make money, you know, and, 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 and engage socially in a human system and stop building a, a transhuman system. Well, the first thing you have to see is you have to get a good map. In other words, you can't navigate this unless you can see the transhumanist system that is being built and who's building it. But if you're involved with, so let's go back to the pillars. Okay. Don't help the military build Operation Warp Speed. Okay. Don't help the tech guys figure out how to inject nanoparticles into your body and hook them up to the cloud. Don't help big pharma, you know, make, make injections which are poisoning American children to death. Don't help big ag make, grow GMO food that is poisoning America to death. Don't help the government institute corrupt, you know, sort of health crisis regulations that are really disaster capitalism in making the private equity guys and the billionaires rich and on and on and on. But if you, if you, you know, I'll just be blunt, get the state of our currencies and read it and you'll know who's doing this. I mean, it's pretty obvious who's doing this. I mean, he's got 325 million people and more, and a lot of them have guns and they don't have a lockdown yet. This is why the Second Amendment is such a fractious issue. Most people around the world don't understand why people in America are so rabid about owning guns. And, you know, the first reason they're rabid about owning guns is they don't understand the power of mind control. So, you know, so if I can institute total mind control, which is what the system is, you know, guns aren't that dangerous to me. But, um, you know, the leadership is to do what they want to do. It would be very, very convenient if they could bring in the guns. And you'll see if the Democrats win this election, that's the first thing they're going to try and do. Um, after making everybody wear face diapers, they're going to they're gonna try and bring in the guns. And this is why the Republicans holding the Senate has been such a big issue. Yeah. Because they can't do it if the Republicans hold the Senate. The election is such a mess, huh? So here's the thing. What I try and tell everybody, you know, because I, I grew up in Philadelphia, and my first boyfriend's father was a ward leader who used to go out with a roll of cash and buy all the votes every election. So, you know, there's an old tradition in America voting fraud. And what I tell everybody is neither one of these candidates would have been the candidate without the voting fraud to begin with. So, you know, we're in a funny position, but I've never seen the voting fraud as blatant. And I think to a certain extent, you know, it's interesting. They could not have stopped a Trump landslide without COVID-19. So one question I have is how much of the, because I thought they would do this after the election, how much of the timing of the healthcare op is basically designed to make sure they don't get a populist president? Not that Trump isn't, 
you know, it's hard for me to think of Donald Trump as a populist because he's very much on board for the pro-centralization team, but he's, um, as Michael Moore has said, he's the American people's way of saying F you to the, to the leadership. So I think it was very important to them to get rid of Trump, which they're trying to do. The problem is they've used massive voter fraud to do it, and but they've used the fraud in a way that it's obvious that the fraud is off the charts. And it's almost as though, you know, they, they're turning to the the population, which they're trying to turn into a cult, saying, you have to pretend this guy is the president, even though you know he's not. <laughs> so, so, you know, we have a fake virus and a magic virus and a fake president and a magic political system. And, it's, you know, it really is getting very cult-like. It's the only thing I can say. Yeah, it's almost like a, a switch is flicked this year and we're in bizarre world, right? <laughs> um, so we've been in bizarre world. From the minute they started to, to steal the money, we moved into a bizarre world. And I think, you know, the only difference is now, as they moved all the money and the official reality moved away from reality even further and further. You know, that's part and parcel of the secrecy. Many people thought they could stay on the middle of the road. And now what's clear is, you know, you have to go with the cult or you have to go with truth. The middle of the road is is going away. And so everybody has to choose which they want. Let's go to the rides. Okay, so... so when the riots began and the leadership took the position that you couldn't go to church because of the danger of the magic virus, but you could go to the riots and protests, <laughs> my team and I started to look at the riots. And so we first we made, if you, if you come into Solari, there's a database called COVID-19, and uh, I think it's COVID-19, Riots and Fed. So the first thing we did is we looked at the state... And we looked at the cities and whether the governor was Democrat or Republican and then what the COVID cases and deaths were. And then we said, okay, we're going to check a box called riots where riots have been. So we started to look at the patterns of the riots vis-a-vis the machine, political machine control and sort of the COVID magic virus op. And there was something wrong when I was looking at the data and I could feel, you know, I, I'm a very intuitive person. I was saying, there's something, there's something here. So I said to the wonderful teammate who was building this, I said, do me a favor. I want you to put a box called the Federal Reserve. And I want you to check the box. There are 12 banks, one headquarters, and then the branches for a total of 37 locations. I want you to check the box wherever... In, in any city where we have a branch or a bank or the headquarters, I want a check. And what we discovered is 34 of the 37 bank locations have riots. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's a pattern. <laughs> There's something here. Let's drill down. So we started with Minneapolis, and uh, we said, let's take the data of all the buildings that were harmed or burnt or businesses, and we'll map it. You know, we'll do a GIS software and we'll map where these businesses were and how close they were to the Federal Reserve Bank. And so 
the first one we did, there's a there's a street going across Minneapolis called Lake. And we mapped them. And one of the things we did when we mapped them was we drew pictures of where the opportunity zones were. Do you know what an opportunity zone is? An opportunity zone is a tax shelter mechanism created in 2018 to help the tech billionaires as they sold their stock avoid capital gains. So you can, if you're Jeff Bezos, who sold $10 billion of stock this year, if you were to roll over your proceeds into opportunity zone investments and handle it in a certain way, you could avoid all capital gains tax. So this is fantastically profitable. Now, if you look at the riots, when I first saw how all the buildings and businesses destroyed along Lake Street were right at the bottom of the opportunity, I started to laugh and I said, you know, I was Assistant Secretary of Housing. That's not a riot pattern. That's a real estate acquisition plan. So what are you saying? It's to, it's to cheapen the prices in the city? To so so I have a thriving series of small businesses, a lot owned by African American and Hispanics along a particular boulevard in the Opportunity Zone. If first I declare the businesses non-essential and shut them down, right? Magic virus. So first I declare them non-essential, so now they're in real trouble, right? Because they can't do their business. And then I have riots and burn and damage them, right? If I was really clever, I'd pull their insurance right before I did it. I don't know what the case was, but we'll see. So now their business is shut down. They're now hung on their debt, right? Whether their mortgage or their credit card. But even worse, now their building has been damaged. And, of course, insurance doesn't cover all the repairs and fixing, right? So needless to say, it's going to be a lot easier and cheaper for me to go in and buy up all those buildings, right? Voila. It's called disaster capitalism. So we then mapped, we did Minneapolis, then we mapped uh, Kenosha, then Portland, and now we're doing a place in Ohio. And the, the patterns we're seeing, if you look at the clusters of where the damage is, just speaking as Assistant Secretary of Housing, those are, in my opinion, real estate acquisition plans completely, you know, especially when they come on top of declaring all those small businesses not essential and shutting them down or restricting them. You know, you, I'm sure you got a lot of restaurants in there. Yeah. So, for example, if you look at San Francisco, 49% of the businesses in San Francisco are expected to be out of business by the end of the year. Do you know how much real estate you're going to be able to pick up cheap on this? It's going to, it's phenomenal. Now, when you realize that if they sell their tech stocks high, they can pick it up really cheap, what's important to understand is this makes the economics of building the smart grid out in the Fed cities. Remember I said 34 of 37 cities have a Fed banker branch. So this makes building out the smart, smart grid around the Fed banks much cheaper, which I'm assuming you want to do if you're going to come out with a crypto system. Okay. Okay, so Mr. Global is now coming to the point where... Can you explain who's Mr. Global? Yeah, so Mr. Global is my nickname for the committee that runs the world. The defining characteristic of life on planet Earth 
is our real global governance system is a mystery. And think about it. It's phenomenal we live on a planet and we don't demand to know how our governance system really works. But instead, it's a secret. So, you know, I have a lot of high-octane conjectures, Dr. Frill would say, about who and what that is. But for now, we'll call it Mr. Global. So Mr. Global is now implementing robotics. That's one of the new technologies that's really starting to make an enormous difference. So can you label that? That's okay, so, so, so here's our robot and here's our human. And, of course, the question for Mr. Global is, you know, which is more efficient doing what? In other words, if I'm supposed to manage the planet and all the natural resources and harvest it to my benefit and make sure, you know, my risk is reduced, how much do I want to use robots for and how much do I want to do, do humans for? Now, the brilliance of hooking everybody into the cloud with a crypt system, a crypto system, is with AI and software, I can have the humans teach the robots through the AI and software how to do all their jobs. And in fact, I was at the Aspen Institute in 2017, and I was having a discussion with, with a venture capitalist, you know, sort of billionaire type, and he looked at me with these amazingly dead eyes, and he said, look, honey, you know, I can I can take every company completely automate it with with software and robotics and and fire all the humans. We don't need them anymore. I've never talked to anybody who didn't understand the riot part, because uh-huh. that's a very typical old game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you want me to continue with this? So we have we have the. Mr. Global at the top. We have the database and software systems using artificial intelligence. Uh, a very important part of this now is the satellite system that's being put up in the orbital platform. And using telecommunications and digital technology, you have the ability 24-7 to track and monitor both your humans and your robots. And the question for Mr. Global is, what's more efficient? If I can do everything with robots, then what do I do with the humans? I don't need them anymore. So are we seeing build a kind of human farming or something? So they would describe it as resource management. And if you look at the technocracy and the writing about technocracy, so many of us describe we're moving from a, you know, whatever systems we use now to a technocracy. In a technocracy, they they view, you have two different visions of the world. My vision of the world is that humans are sovereign individuals whose freedom comes by divine authority. That is what the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution all revolve around. The image of a, of a sovereign individual as, as someone um, who is free by divine authority. In the vision of technocracy, a human is a natural resource like a oil deposit and to be used as such. So they're not a sovereign individual, they're labor, and they are either more efficient or less efficient than a robot at different functions. In other words, what I'm saying is Mr. Global views the human race like livestock, not someone with which they share empathy and you know, they don't view us as the same species as them. 
And in fact, with a lot of the biotechnology, they figure they're going to live much longer lives than we do and live very differently than we do. So there's been a real, one of the, one of the challenges with the secrecy as one group becomes more and more technologically advanced, they separate culturally, legally, financially from all the other groups. In other words, they have literally broken away and created a separate civilization. They don't think of themselves as part of our civilization anymore. And who is they? Well, that's the great mystery, and that's why I call this group Mr. Global. And I, you know, my personal experiences with many different people in that group and factions, but ultimately I can't tell you who really controls. What I will tell you is the planet is run by force. And so ultimately the question is who is the, who is the most powerful gun? And that comes down to space. Who has the most powerful space presence, space weapons, as well as who controls the sea lanes? So traditionally, Control behind the reserve currency came from control of the sea lanes, but then as we've moved into space, it's, it's now become control of both the sea lanes and the satellite lanes. And the question is, who controls what and who has what weapons? One of the reasons you've seen a very interesting discussion in the United States for the last two years is Trump has been very verbal about space force and what is possible in space and he'll make these allusions to our magical weapons in space at which point the generals look at him very disapproving like don't talk about that so the answer is we don't know we don't know what we do know is part of the competition right now between China and America is that the player who has the most dominant position in space has the power to control the whole planet so, so the Chinese have a, um, a system called the social credit system and they're very much tying their financial transactions and different abilities to travel and do other things to your behavior. And, um, uh, you know, we've seen different TV shows talk about these kinds of systems. But you're talking about a world where, and we see it in China, where, um, most people are under 24-7 surveillance and then their financial incentives and their financial powers relate to how well behaved they are. And I would describe it essentially as a, as a slavery system because there's no personal freedom. So to a certain extent, what technocracy will do is move us to a similar kind of system as the Chinese social credit system. Where if you misbehave you can be punished right so so you know you so so in theory you have to get a certain kind of job to make a certain kind of money uh in the current system in the new system you have to uh work for a certain kind of company and achieve a certain kind of prominence to be allowed to to move more than 10 miles from your home or to be allowed to fly so there'll be a pecking order that relates to your freedoms to either travel or roam um, or how much sort of access you have to resources. So how much money you can make. But remember, you're, you're going into a system where if they believe they can automate everything with robotic software and AI, it's going to be that much harder for you to share 
in the benefits and the wealth of the system because the, the central group can extract so much more. In other words, they have a one-way mirror. They can see everything you do. You can't even see who they are. Yeah. Okay. What's very important to understand about what is happening is that the majority of people have been, if, if we're talking about a transhumanist system or, you know, in short, a slavery system, most of us have been supporting it and financing it and building it. So when I look at all the big pharma executives, why are they building a system where their own children or grandchildren will be slaves? Why are the central banks doing it? Why did they think, you know, there, there's a theory in America for many years among the sort of money classes that if I make enough money, I can get a waiver. I can get out of it. I can eat organic food, not eat the GMOs, and my grandkids, you know, won't have to take vaccines. But if you look at who's implementing all these different activities, you know, we're building our own slavery system, and that means we have the power to stop. In other words, we don't have to finance the companies that are doing this. We don't have to work for the companies that are doing this. And in fact, we don't even have to pay our taxes because the government is breaking all the laws related to financial management. We have the ability to hold them accountable. So we're building the prison and we're financing the prison and that gives us the power to stop. And that's why it's so important that we see where the system is going. There will be no exceptions. So what is the solution? Solution is number one, bring transparency to what's happening, understand where the system is going, and then stop building it. You know, if if you work for Big Pharma and you're building this, stop. You know, go find something else to do, like build local fresh food systems so you will have food. Um, you know, so stop financing it. Um, begin the conversation of where this is going and, more importantly, where we want to go. Because we're going to have to rebuild the economy bottom-up if we don't want to be highly centralized. So this comes down to, you know, I call it coming clean. Once upon a time, I was in Washington. I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase private banking account. And in the meantime, I was engaged in 12 different tracks of litigation, litigating with the people who were trying to engineer the housing bubble. I was trying to stop the housing bubble from happening. And I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase personal banking account. I realized, why am I banking at the bank that's doing this criminality, that's destroying communities, that's doing predatory lending? And I said, you know, I need to come clean. I need to stop banking there. So, you know, if tomorrow everybody woke up in America and stopped banking at J.P. Morgan Chase and said, you know something, y'all are criminals, we want nothing to do with you, we're out, and went to a local credit union or community bank, it would be a revolution. It would be a, a, a total revolution. If 20 women turned to big farm executives and said, you know something, you're disgusting, no sex, bye, out the door, be a revolution. So we have the power to change this, but 
we're all going to have to come clean because almost all of us are complicit in implementing this. It's not them, it's us. The solution is for every one of us to come clean. You're either for the transhumanist slavery system or you're for, for a human system. But if you're for a human system, then you're going to have to find a way to make money, you know, and, 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 and engage socially in a human system and stop building a, a transhuman system. Well, the first thing you have to see is you have to get a good map. In other words, you can't navigate this unless you can see the transhumanist system that is being built and who's building it. But if you're involved with, so let's go back to the pillars. Okay. Don't help the military build Operation Warp Speed. Okay. Don't help the tech guys figure out how to inject nanoparticles into your body and hook them up to the cloud. Don't help big pharma, you know, make, make injections which are poisoning American children to death. Don't help big ag make, grow GMO food that is poisoning America to death. Don't help the government institute corrupt, you know, sort of health crisis regulations that are really disaster capitalism and making the private equity guys and the billionaires rich and on and on and on. But if you, if you, you know, I'll just be blunt, get the state of our currencies and read it and you'll know who's doing this. I mean, it's pretty obvious who's doing this. When he's got 325 million people and more, and a lot of them have guns and they don't have a lockdown yet. This is why the Second Amendment is such a fractious issue. Most people around the world don't understand why people in America are so rabid about owning guns. And, you know, the first reason they're rabid about owning guns is they don't understand the power of mind control. <laughs> so, you know, so if I can institute total mind control, which is what the system is, you know, guns aren't that dangerous to me. But, um, you know, the leadership is... To do what they want to do, it would be very, very convenient if they could bring in the guns. And you'll see if the Democrats win this election, that's the first thing they're going to try and do. Um, after making everybody wear face diapers, they're going, to, they're going to try and bring in the guns. And this is why the Republicans holding the Senate has been such a big issue. Yeah. Because they can't do it if the Republicans hold the Senate. The election is such a mess, huh? So here's the thing. When I try and tell everybody, you know, because I, I grew up in Philadelphia, and my first boyfriend's father was a ward leader who used to go out with a roll of cash and buy all the votes every election. So, you know, there's an old tradition in America voting fraud. And what I tell everybody is neither one of these candidates would have been the candidate without the voting fraud to begin with. So, you know, we're in a funny position. But I've never seen the voting fraud as blatant. And I think to a certain extent, you know, it's interesting. They could not have stopped a Trump landslide without COVID-19. So one question I have is how much of the, because t- I thought they would do this after the election. How much of the timing of the healthcare op is basically designed to make sure they don't get a populist president? Not that Trump isn't, you know, it's hard for me to think of Donald Trump as a populist because he's very much on board for the pro-centralization team, but he's, um, as Michael Moore has said, he's the American people's way of saying F you to the, to the leadership. So I think it was very important to them to get rid of Trump, which they're trying to do. The problem is they've used massive voter fraud to do it, and, but they've used the fraud in a way that it's obvious that the fraud is off the charts 
And it's almost as though, you know, they, they're turning to the, the population, which they're trying to turn into a cult and saying, you have to pretend this guy is the president, even though you know he's not. <laughs> so, so, you know, we have a fake virus and a magic virus and a fake president and a magic political system. And it's, you know, it really is getting very cult-like. It's the only thing I can say. Yeah, it's almost like a, uh, a switch is flicked this year and we're in bizarro world, right? <laughs> um, so we've been in bizarre world. From the minute they started to, to steal the money, we moved into a bizarre world. And I think, you know, the only difference is now, as they moved all the money and the official reality moved away from reality even further and further, you know, that's part and parcel of the secrecy. Many people thought they could stay on the middle of the road. And now what's clear is, you know, you have to go with the cult or you have to go with truth. The middle of the road is is going away. And so everybody has to choose which they want. Let's go to the riots. Okay, so so when the riots began and the leadership took the position that you couldn't go to church because of the danger of the magic virus, but you could go to the riots and protest, <laughs> my team and I started to look at the riots. And so we first we made, if you, if you come into Solari, there's a database called COVID-19, and uh, I think it's COVID-19, Riots and Fed. So the first thing we did is we looked at the state and we looked at the cities and whether the governor was Democrat or Republican, and then what the COVID cases and deaths were. And then we said, okay, we're going to check a box called riots where riots have been. So we started to look at the patterns of the riots vis-a-vis the machine, political machine control and sort of the COVID magic virus op. And there was something wrong when I was looking at the data and I could feel, you know, I'm a very intuitive person. I was saying, there's something, there's something here. So I said to the wonderful teammate who was building this, I said, do me a favor. I want you to put a box called the Federal Reserve. And I want you to check the box. There are 12 banks, one headquarters, and then the branches for a total of 37 locations. I want you to check the box wherever... In, in any city where we have a branch or a bank or the headquarters, I want a check. And what we discovered is 34 of the 37 bank locations had riots. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's a pattern. <laughs> There's something here. Let's drill down. So we started with Minneapolis, and uh, we said, let's take the data of all the buildings that were harmed or burnt or businesses, and we'll map it. You know, we'll do a GIS software and we'll map where these businesses were and how close they were to the Federal Reserve Bank. And so the first one we did, there's a there's a street going across Minneapolis called Lake. And we mapped them. And one of the things we did when we mapped them was we drew pictures of where the opportunity zones were. Do you know what an opportunity zone is? An opportunity zone is a tax shelter mechanism created in 2018 to help the tech billionaires as they sold their stock 
avoid capital gains. So you can, if you're Jeff Bezos, who sold $10 billion of stock this year, if you were to roll over your proceeds into opportunity zone investments and handle it in a certain way, you could avoid all capital gains tax. So this is fantastically profitable. Now, if you look at the riots, when I first saw how all the buildings and businesses destroyed along Lake Street were right at the bottom of the opportunity, I started to laugh and I said, you know, I was Assistant Secretary of Housing. That's not a riot pattern. That's a real estate acquisition plan. So what are you saying? It's to, it's to cheapen the prices in the city? So, so I have a thriving series of small businesses, a lot owned by African American and Hispanics along a particular boulevard in the Opportunity Zone. If first I declare the businesses non-essential and shut them down, right? Magic virus. So first I declare them non-essential, so now they're in real trouble, right? Because they can't do their business. And then I have riots and burn and damage them, right? If I was really clever, I'd pull their insurance right before I did it. I don't know what the case was, but we'll see. So now their business is shut down. They're now hung on their debt, right? Whether their mortgage or their credit card. But even worse, now their building has been damaged. And of course, insurance doesn't cover all the repairs and fixing, right? So needless to say, it's going to be a lot easier and cheaper for me to go in and buy up all those buildings, right? Voila. It's called disaster capitalism. So we then mapped, we did Minneapolis, then we mapped uh, Kenosha, then Portland, and now we're doing a place in Ohio. And the, the patterns we're seeing, if you look at the clusters of where the damage is, just speaking as Assistant Secretary of Housing, those are, in my opinion, real estate acquisition plans completely, you know, especially when they come on top of declaring all those small businesses not essential and shutting them down or restricting them. You know, you, I'm sure you got a lot of restaurants in there. Yeah. So, for example, if you look at San Francisco, 49% of the businesses in San Francisco are expected to be out of business by the end of the year. Do you know how much real estate you're going to be able to pick up cheap on this? It's going to, it's phenomenal. Now, when you realize that if they sell their tech stocks high, they can pick it up really cheap, what's important to understand is, this makes the economics of building the smart grid out in the Fed cities. Remember, I said 34 of 37 cities have a Fed banker branch. So this makes building out the smart smart grid around the Fed banks much cheaper, which I'm assuming you want to do if you're going to come out with a crypto system. Okay. Okay, so Mr. Global is now coming to the point where... Can you explain who's Mr. Global? Yes. Yeah, so Mr. Global is my nickname for the committee that runs the world. The defining characteristic of life on planet Earth is our real global governance system is a mystery. And think about it. It's phenomenal we live on a planet and we don't demand to know how our governance system really works. But instead it's a secret. So, you know, I have a lot of high-octane conjecture, as Dr. Fair would say about who and what that is, but for now we'll call it Mr. Global. So Mr. Global is now 
implementing robotics. That's one of the new technologies that's really starting to make an enormous difference. So can you label that? That's okay, so, so, so here's our robot and here's our human. And of course, the question for Mr. Global is, you know, which is more efficient doing what? In other words, if I'm supposed to manage the planet and all the natural resources and harvest it to my benefit and make sure, you know, my risk is reduced, how much do I want to use robots for and how much do I want to do, do humans for? Now, the brilliance of hooking everybody into the cloud with a crypt system, a crypto system, is with AI and software, I can have the humans teach the robots through the AI and software how to do all their jobs. And in fact, I was at the Aspen Institute in 2017, and I was having a discussion with with a venture capitalist, you know, sort of billionaire type, and he looked at me with these amazingly dead eyes, and he said, look, honey, you know, I can I can take every company completely automate it with with software and robotics and and fire all the humans. We don't need them anymore. I've never talked to anybody who didn't understand the riot part. Because uh-huh. that's a very typical old game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you want me to continue with this? So we have we have the. Mr. Global at the top. We have the database and software systems using artificial intelligence. Uh, a very important part of this now is the satellite system that's being put up in the orbital platform. And using telecommunications and digital technology, you have the ability 24-7 to track and monitor both your humans and your robots. And the question for Mr. Global is, what's more efficient? If I can do everything with robots, then what do I do with the humans? I don't need them anymore. So are we seeing build a kind of human farming or something? So they would describe it as resource management. And if you look at the technocracy and the writing about technocracy, so many of us describe we're moving from a, you know, whatever systems we use now to a technocracy. In a technocracy, they they view, you have two different visions of the world. My vision of the world is that humans are sovereign individuals whose freedom comes by divine authority. That is what the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution all revolve around. The image of a, of a sovereign individual as, as someone um, who is free by divine authority. In the vision of technocracy, a human is a natural resource like a oil deposit and to be used as such. So they're not a sovereign individual, they're labor, and they are either more efficient or less efficient than a robot at different functions. In other words, what I'm saying is Mr. Global views the human race like livestock, not someone with which they share empathy and you know, they don't view us as the same species as them. And in fact, with a lot of the biotechnology, they figure they're going to live much longer lives than we do and live very differently than we do. So there's been a real, one of the, one of the challenges with the secrecy as one group becomes more and more technologically advanced, they separate culturally, 
legally, financially from all the other groups. In other words, they have literally broken away and created a separate civilization. They don't think of themselves as part of our civilization anymore. And who is they? Well, that's the great mystery, and that's why I call this group Mr. Global. And I, you know, my personal experiences with many different people in that group and factions, but ultimately I can't tell you who really controls. What I will tell you is the planet is run by force. And so ultimately the question is who is the, who is the most powerful gun? And that comes down to space. Who has the most powerful space presence, space weapons, as well as who controls the sea lanes? So traditionally, control behind the reserve currency came from control of the sea lanes. But then as we've moved into space, it's, it's now become control of both the sea lanes and the satellite lanes. And the question is, who controls what and who has what weapons? One of the reasons you've seen a very interesting discussion in the United States for the last two years is Trump has been very verbal about space force and what is possible in space, and he'll make these allusions to our magical weapons in space, at which point the generals look at him very disapproving, like, don't talk about that. So the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is part of the competition right now between China and America is that the player who has the most dominant position in space has the power to control the whole planet. So, so the Chinese have a, um, a system called the social credit system and they're very much tying their financial transactions and different abilities to travel and do other things to your behavior. And, um, uh, you know, we've seen different TV shows talk about these kinds of systems. But you're talking about a world where, and we see it in China, where, um, most people are under 24-7 surveillance and then their financial incentives and their financial powers relate to how well behaved they are. And I would describe it essentially as a, as a slavery system because there's no personal freedom. So to a certain extent, what technocracy will do is move us to a similar kind of system as the Chinese social credit system. Where if you misbehave you can be punished right so so you know you so so in theory you have to get a certain kind of job to make a certain kind of money uh in the current system in the new system you have to uh work for a certain kind of company and achieve a certain kind of prominence to be allowed to to move more than 10 miles from your home or to be allowed to fly so there'll be a pecking order that relates to your freedoms to either travel or roam um, or how much sort of access you have to resources. So how much money you can make. But remember, you're, you're going into a system where if they believe they can automate everything with robotic software and AI, it's going to be that much harder for you to share in the benefits and the wealth of the system because the, the central group can extract so much more. In other words, they have a one-way mirror. They can see everything you do. You can't even see who they are. Yeah. Okay.
What's very important to understand about what is happening is that the majority of people have been, if, if we're talking about a transhumanist system or, you know, in short, a slavery system, most of us have been supporting it and financing it and building it. So when I look at all the big pharma executives, why are they building a system where their own children or grandchildren will be slaves? Why are the central banks doing it? Why did they think, you know, there, there's a theory in America for many years among the sort of money classes that if I make enough money, I can get a waiver. I can get out of it. I can eat organic food, not eat the GMOs, and my grandkids, you know, won't have to take vaccines. But if you look at who's implementing all these different activities, you know, we're building our own slavery system, and that means we have the power to stop. In other words, we don't have to finance the companies that are doing this. We don't have to work for the companies that are doing this. And in fact, we don't even have to pay our taxes because the government is breaking all the laws related to financial management. We have the ability to hold them accountable. So we're building the prison and we're financing the prison and that gives us the power to stop. And that's why it's so important that we see where the system is going. There will be no exceptions. So what is the solution? Solution is number one, bring transparency to what's happening, understand where the system is going, and then stop building it. You know, if if you work for Big Pharma and you're building this, stop. You know, go find something else to do, like build local fresh food systems so you will have food. Um, you know, so stop financing it. Um, begin the conversation of where this is going and, more importantly, where we want to go. Because we're going to have to rebuild the economy bottom-up if we don't want to be highly centralized. So this comes down to, you know, I call it coming clean. Once upon a time, I was in Washington. I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase private banking account. And in the meantime, I was engaged in 12 different tracks of litigation, litigating with the people who were trying to engineer the housing bubble. I was trying to stop the housing bubble from happening. And I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase personal banking account. I realized, why am I banking at the bank that's doing this criminality, that's destroying communities, that's doing predatory lending? And I said, you know, I need to come clean. I need to stop banking there. So, you know, if tomorrow everybody woke up in America and stopped banking at J.P. Morgan Chase and said, you know something, y'all are criminals, we want nothing to do with you, we're out, and went to a local credit union or community bank, it would be a revolution. It would be a, a, a total revolution. If 20 women turned to big farm executives and said, you know something, you're disgusting, no sex, bye, out the door, be a revolution. So we have the power to change this, but we're all going to have to come clean because almost all of us are complicit in implementing this. It's not them, it's us. The solution is for every one of us to come clean. You're either for the transhumanist slavery system or you're for, for a human system. But if you're for a human system, then you're going to have to find a way to make money you know, and, and, and 
and engage socially in a human system and stop building a, a transhuman system? Well, the first thing you have to see is you have to get a good map. In other words, you can't navigate this unless you can see the transhumanist system that is being built and who's building it. But if you're involved with, so let's go back to the pillars. Okay. Don't help the military build Operation Warp Speed. Okay. Don't help the tech guys figure out how to inject nanoparticles into your body and hook them up to the cloud. Don't help big pharma, you know, make make injections which are poisoning American children to death. Don't help big ag make grow GMO food that is poisoning America to death. Don't help the government institute corrupt, you know, sort of health crisis regulations that are really disaster capitalism and making the private equity guys and the billionaires rich and on and on and on. But if you, if you, you know, I'll just be blunt, get the state of our currencies and read it and you'll know who's doing this. I mean, it's pretty obvious who's doing this. When he's got 325 million people and more, and a lot of them have guns and they don't have a lockdown yet. This is why the Second Amendment is such a fractious issue. Most people around the world don't understand why people in America are so rabid about owning guns. And, you know, the first reason they're rabid about owning guns is they don't understand the power of mind control. (laughs) So, you know, so if I can institute total mind control, which is what the system is, you know, guns aren't that dangerous to me. But, um, you know, the leadership is... To do what they want to do, it would be very, very convenient if they could bring in the guns. And you'll see if the Democrats win this election, that's the first thing they're going to try and do. Um, after making everybody wear face diapers, they're going, to, they're going to try and bring in the guns. And this is why the Republicans holding the Senate has been such a big issue. Yeah. Because they can't do it if the Republicans hold the Senate. The election is such a mess, huh? So here's the thing. What I try and tell everybody, you know, because I, I grew up in Philadelphia, and my first boyfriend's father was a ward leader who used to go out with a roll of cash and buy all the votes every election. So, you know, there's an old tradition in America voting fraud. And what I tell everybody is neither one of these candidates would have been the candidate without the voting fraud to begin with. So, you know, we're in a funny position. But I've never seen the voting fraud as blatant. And I think to a certain extent... You know, it's interesting. They could not have stopped a Trump landslide without COVID-19. So one question I have is how much of the, because t- I thought they would do this after the election, how much of the timing of the health care op is basically designed to make sure they don't get a populist president? Not that Trump isn't, you know, it's hard for me to think of Donald Trump as a populist because he's very much on board for the pro-centralization team, but he's... um as Michael Moore has said, he's the American people's way of saying F you to the, to the leadership. So I think it was very important to them to get rid of Trump, which they're trying to do. The problem is they've used massive voter fraud to do it, and, but they've used the fraud in a way that it's obvious that the fraud is off the charts. And it's almost as though, you know, they, they're turning to the, the population, which they're trying to turn into a cult and saying, you have to pretend this guy is the president, even though you know he's not. <laughs> so, 
So, you know, we have a fake virus and a magic virus and a fake president and a magic political system. And, it's, you know, it really is getting very cult-like. It's the only thing I can say. Yeah, it's almost like a, a switch is flicked this year and we're in bizarro world, right? <laughs> um, so we've been in bizarre world. From the minute they started to to steal the money, we moved into a bizarre world. And I think... You know, the only difference is now, as they moved all the money and the official reality moved away from reality even further and further, you know, that's part and parcel of the secrecy, many people thought they could stay on the middle of the road. And now what's clear is, you know, you have to go with the cult or you have to go with truth. The middle of the road is is going away. And so everybody has to choose which they want. Let's go to the riots. Okay, so so when the riots began and the leadership took the position that you couldn't go to church because of the danger of the magic virus, but you could go to the riots and protest, <laughs> my team and I started to look at the riots. And so we first we made if you if you come into Solari there's a database called COVID nineteen and uh I think it's COVID nineteen riots and Fed. So the first thing we did is we looked at the state and we looked at the cities and whether the governor was Democrat or Republican, and then what the COVID cases and deaths were. And then we said, Okay, we're gonna check a box called riots where riots have been. So we started to look at the patterns of the riots vis-a-vis the machine, political machine control and sort of the COVID magic virus op. And there was something wrong when I was looking at the data and I could feel, you know, I'm a very intuitive person. I was saying, there's something, there's something here. So I said to the wonderful teammate who was building this, I said, do me a favor. I want you to put a box called the Federal Reserve and I want you to check the box there are 12 banks, one headquarters, and then the branches for a total of 37 locations. I want you to check the box wherever, in, in any city where we have a branch or a bank or the headquarters, I want a check. And what we discovered is 34 of the 37 bank locations have riots. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's a pattern. <laughs> There's something here. Let's drill down. So we started with Minneapolis, and uh, we said, let's take the data of all the buildings that were harmed or burnt or businesses, and we'll map it. You know, we'll do a GIS software, and we'll map where these businesses were and how close they were to the Federal Reserve Bank. And so the first one we did, there's a, there's a street going across Minneapolis called Lake, And we mapped them. And one of the things we did when we mapped them was we drew pictures of where the opportunity zones were. Do you know what an opportunity zone is? An opportunity zone is a tax shelter mechanism created in 2018 to help the tech billionaires as they sold their stock avoid capital gains. So you can, if you're Jeff Bezos who sold $10 billion of stock this year, 
if you were to roll over your proceeds into opportunity zone investments and handle it in a certain way, you could avoid all capital gains tax. So this is fantastically profitable. Now, if you look at the riots, when I first saw how all the buildings and businesses destroyed along Lake Street were right at the bottom of the opportunity, I started to laugh and I said, you know, I was Assistant Secretary of Housing. That's not a riot pattern. That's a real estate acquisition plan. So what are you saying? It's to... It's to Cheapen the prices in the city? So, so I have a thriving series of small businesses, a lot owned by African American and Hispanics along a particular boulevard in the Opportunity Zone. If first I declare the businesses non-essential and shut them down, right? Magic virus. So first I declare them non-essential, so now they're in real trouble, right? Because they can't do their business. And then I have riots and burn and damage them, right? If I was really clever, I'd pull their insurance right before I did it. I don't know what the case was, but we'll see. So now their business is shut down. They're now hung on their debt, right, whether their mortgage or their credit card. But even worse, now their building has been damaged. And, of course, insurance doesn't cover all the repairs and fixing, Right. So needless to say, it's going to be a lot easier and cheaper for me to go in and buy up all those buildings, right? Voila. It's called disaster capitalism. So we then mapped, we did Minneapolis, then we mapped uh, Kenosha, then Portland, and now we're doing a place in Ohio. And the, the patterns we're seeing, if you look at the clusters of where the damage is, just speaking as Assistant Secretary of Housing, those are, in my opinion, real estate acquisition plans completely, you know, especially when they come on top of declaring all those small businesses not essential and shutting them down or restricting them. You know, you, I'm sure you got a lot of restaurants in there. Yeah. So, for example, if you look at San Francisco, 49% of the businesses in San Francisco are expected to be out of business by the end of the year. Do you know how much real estate you're going to be able to pick up cheap on this? It's going to, it's phenomenal. Now, when you realize that if they sell their tech stocks high, they can pick it up really cheap, what's important to understand is this makes the economics of building the smart grid out in the Fed cities. Remember, I said 34 of 37 cities have a Fed banker branch. So this makes building out the smart, smart grid around the Fed banks much cheaper, which I'm assuming you want to do if you're going to come out with a crypto system. Okay. Okay, so Mr. Global is now coming to the point where... And can you explain who's Mr. Global? Yeah, so Mr. Global is my nickname for the committee that runs the world. The defining characteristic of life on planet Earth is our real global governance system is a mystery. And think about it, it's phenomenal we live on a planet and we don't demand to know how our governance system really works. But instead, it's a secret. So, you know, I have a lot of high-octane conjectures, Dr. Fur would say about who and what that is, but for now, we'll call it Mr. Global. So Mr. Global is now implementing robotics. That's one of the new technologies that's really starting to make an enormous difference. 
Can you label that? That's okay, so, so, so here's our robot and here's our human. And of course, the question for Mr. Global is, you know, which is more efficient doing what? In other words, if I'm supposed to manage the planet and all the natural resources and harvest it to my benefit and make sure, you know, my risk is reduced, how much do I want to use robots for and how much do I want to do, do humans for? Now, the brilliance of hooking everybody into the cloud with a crypt system, a crypto system, is with AI and software, I can have the humans teach the robots through the AI and software how to do all their jobs. And in fact, I was at the Aspen Institute in 2017, and I was having a discussion with, with a venture capitalist, you know, sort of billionaire type, and he looked at me with these amazingly dead eyes, and he said, look, honey, you know, I can I can take every company completely automate it with with software and robotics and and fire all the humans. We don't need them anymore. I've never talked to anybody who didn't understand the riot part. Because uh-huh. that's a very typical old game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you want me to continue with this? So we have we have the. Mr. Global at the top. We have the database and software systems using artificial intelligence. Uh, a very important part of this now is the satellite system that's being put up in the orbital platform. And using telecommunications and digital technology, you have the ability 24-7 to track and monitor both your humans and your robots. And the question for Mr. Global is, what's more efficient? If I can do everything with robots, then what do I do with the humans? I don't need them anymore. So are we seeing build a kind of human farming or something? So they would describe it as resource management. And if you look at the technocracy and the writing about technocracy, so many of us describe we're moving from a, you know, whatever systems we use now to a technocracy. In a technocracy, they they view, you have two different visions of the world. My vision of the world is that humans are sovereign individuals whose freedom comes by divine authority. That is what the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution all revolve around. The image of a, of a sovereign individual as, as someone um, who is free by divine authority. In the vision of technocracy, a human is a natural resource like a oil deposit and to be used as such. So they're not a sovereign individual, they're labor, and they are either more efficient or less efficient than a robot at different functions. In other words, what I'm saying is Mr. Global views the human race like livestock, not someone with which they share empathy and you know, they don't view us as the same species as them. And in fact, with a lot of the biotechnology, they figure they're going to live much longer lives than we do and live very differently than we do. So there's been a real, one of the, one of the challenges with the secrecy as one group becomes more and more technologically advanced, they separate culturally, legally, financially, from all the other groups. In other words, they have literally broken away and created a separate civilization. 
they don't think of themselves as part of our civilization anymore. And who is they? Well, that's the great mystery, and that's why I call this group Mr. Global. And I, you know, my personal experiences with many different people in that group and factions, but ultimately, I can't tell you who really controls. What I will tell you is the planet is run by force. And so ultimately, the question is, who is the, who is the most powerful gun? And that comes down to space. Who has the most powerful space presence, space weapons, as well as who controls the sea lanes? So traditionally, control behind the reserve currency came from control of the sea lanes. But then as we've moved into space, it's, it's now become control of both the sea lanes and the satellite lanes. And the question is, who controls what and who has what weapons? One of the reasons you've seen a very interesting discussion in the United States for the last two years is Trump has been very verbal about space force and what is possible in space, and he'll make these allusions to our magical weapons in space, at which point the generals look at him very disapproving, like, don't talk about that. So the answer is we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is part of the competition right now between China and America is that the player who has the most dominant position in space has the power to control the whole planet. So so the Chinese have a, um, a system called the social credit system, and they're very much tying their financial transactions and different abilities to travel and do other things to your behavior. And, um, uh, you know, we've seen different TV shows talk about these kinds of systems. But you're talking about a world where, and we see it in China, where um, most people are under 24-7 surveillance and then their financial incentives and their financial powers relate to how well-behaved they are. And I would describe it essentially as a, as a slavery system because there's no personal freedom. So to a certain extent, what technocracy will do is move us to a similar kind of system as the Chinese social credit system. Where if you misbehave, you can be punished. Right. So, so, you know, you, so, so in theory, you have to get a certain kind of job to make a certain kind of money. Uh, in the current system, in the new system, you have to, uh, work for a certain kind of company and achieve a certain kind of prominence to be allowed to to move more than 10 miles from your home or to be allowed to fly. So there'll be a pecking order that relates to your freedoms to either travel or roam um, or how much sort of access you have to resources, so how much money you can make. But remember, you're you're going into a system where if they believe they can automate everything with robotic software and AI, it's going to be that much harder for you to share in the benefits and the wealth of the system because the, the central group can extract so much more. In other words, they have a one-way mirror. They can see everything you do. You can't even see who they are. Yeah. Okay. What's very important to understand about what is happening is that the majority of people have been, 
if if we're talking about a transhumanist system or, you know, in short, a slavery system, most of us have been supporting it and financing it and building it. So when I look at all the big pharma executives, why are they building a system where their own children or grandchildren will be slaves? Why are the central banks doing it? Why did they think, you know, there, there's a theory in America for many years among the sort of money classes that if I make enough money, I can get a waiver, I can get out of it, I can eat organic food, not eat the GMOs, and my grandkids, you know, won't have to take vaccines. But if you look at who's implementing all these different activities, you know, we're building our own slavery system, and that means we have the power to stop. In other words, we don't have to finance the companies that are doing this. We don't have to work for the companies that are doing this. And in fact, we don't even have to pay our taxes because the government is breaking all the laws related to financial management. We have the ability to hold them accountable. So we're building the prison and we're financing the prison and that gives us the power to stop. And that's why it's so important that we see where the system is going. There will be no exceptions. So what is the solution? Solution is number one, bring transparency to what's happening, understand where the system is going, and then stop building it. You know, if if you work for Big Pharma and you're building this, stop. You know, go find something else to do, like build local fresh food systems so you will have food. Um, you know, so stop financing it. Um, begin the conversation of where this is going and, more importantly, where we want to go. Because we're going to have to rebuild the economy bottom-up if we don't want to be highly centralized. So this comes down to, you know, I call it coming clean. Once upon a time, I was in Washington. I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase private banking account. And in the meantime, I was engaged in 12 different tracks of litigation, litigating with the people who were trying to engineer the housing bubble. I was trying to stop the housing bubble from happening. And I was writing a check on my J.P. Morgan Chase personal banking account. I realized, why am I banking at the bank that's doing this criminality, that's destroying communities, that's doing predatory lending? And I said, you know, I need to come clean. I need to stop banking there. So, you know, if tomorrow everybody woke up in America and stopped banking at J.P. Morgan Chase and said, you know something, y'all are criminals, we want nothing to do with you, we're out, and went to a local credit union or community bank, it would be a revolution. It would be a, a, a total revolution. If 20 women turned to big farm executives and said, you know something, you're disgusting, no sex, bye, out the door, be a revolution. So we have the power to change this, but we're all going to have to come clean because almost all of us are complicit in implementing this. It's not them, it's us. The solution is for every one of us to come clean. You're either for the transhumanist slavery system or you're for, for a human system. But if you're for a human system, then you're going to have to find a way to make money, you know, and, 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 and engage socially in a human system and stop building a, a transhuman system. Well, the first thing you have to see is you have to get a good map. In other words, 
you can't navigate this unless you can see the transhumanist system that is being built and who's building it. But if you're involved with, so let's go back to the pillars. Okay. Don't help the military build Operation Warp Speed. Okay. Don't help the tech guys figure out how to inject nanoparticles into your body and hook them up to the cloud. Don't help big pharma, you know, make make injections which are poisoning American children to death. Don't help big ag make grow GMO food that is poisoning America to death. Don't help the government institute corrupt, you know, sort of health crisis regulations that are really disaster capitalism and making the private equity guys and the billionaires rich and on and on and on. But if you, if you, you know, I'll just be blunt, get the state of our currencies and read it and you'll know who's doing this. I mean, it's pretty obvious who's doing this. I mean, he's got 325 million people and more, and a lot of them have guns and they don't have a lockdown yet. This is why the Second Amendment is such a fractious issue. Most people around the world don't understand why people in America are so rabid about owning guns. And, you know, the first reason they're rabid about owning guns is they don't understand the power of mind control. <laughs> so, you know, so if I can institute total mind control, which is what the system is, you know, guns aren't that dangerous to me. But, um, you know, the leadership is... To do what they want to do, it would be very, very convenient if they could bring in the guns. And you'll see if the Democrats win this election, that's the first thing they're going to try and do. Um, after making everybody wear face diapers, they're going, to, they're going to try and bring in the guns. And this is why the Republicans holding the Senate has been such a big issue. Yeah. Because they can't do it if the Republicans hold the Senate. The election is such a mess, huh? So here's the thing. What I try and tell everybody, you know, because I, I grew up in Philadelphia, and my first boyfriend's father was a ward leader who used to go out with a roll of cash and buy all the votes every election. So, you know, there's an old tradition in America voting fraud. And what I tell everybody is neither one of these candidates would have been the candidate without the voting fraud to begin with. So, you know, we're in a funny position. But I've never seen the voting fraud as blatant. And I think to a certain extent... You know, it's interesting. They could not have stopped a Trump landslide without COVID-19. So one question I have is how much of the, because t- I thought they would do this after the election, how much of the timing of the health care op is basically designed to make sure they don't get a populist president? Not that Trump isn't, you know, it's hard for me to think of Donald Trump as a populist because he's very much on board for the pro-centralization team, but he's... um as Michael Moore has said, he's the American people's way of saying F you to the, to the leadership. So I think it was very important to them to get rid of Trump, which they're trying to do. The problem is they've used massive voter fraud to do it, and, but they've used the fraud in a way that it's obvious that the fraud is off the charts. And it's almost as though, you know, they, they're turning to the, the population, which they're trying to turn into a cult and saying, you have to pretend this guy is the president, even though you know he's not. <laughs> so, so, you know, we have a fake virus and a magic virus and a fake president and a magic political system. And, it's, you know, it really is getting very cult-like. It's the only thing I can say. Yeah, it's almost like a, a switch was flicked this year and we're 
in Bizarro World, right? <laughs> um, so we've been in Bizarro World. From the minute they started to, to steal the money, we moved into a Bizarro World. And I think, you know, the only difference is now, as they moved all the money and the official reality moved away from reality even further and further, you know, that's part and parcel of the secrecy, Many people thought they could stay on the middle of the road. And now what's clear is, you know, you have to go with the cult or you have to go with truth. The middle of the road is is going away. And so everybody has to choose which they want. Let's go to the riots. Okay, so so when the riots began and the leadership took the position that you couldn't go to church because of the danger of the magic virus, but you could go to the riots and protests. <laughs> My team and I started to look at the riots. And so we first we made, if you, if you come into Solari, there's a database called COVID-19, and uh, I think it's COVID-19, riots and fed. So the first thing we did is we looked at the state, and we looked at the cities and whether the governor was Democrat or Republican, and then what the COVID cases and deaths were. And then we said, okay, we're going to check a box called riots, where riots have been. So we started to look at the patterns of the riots vis-a-vis the machine political machine control and sort of the COVID magic virus op. And there was something wrong when I was looking at the data and I could feel, you know, I, I'm a very intuitive person. I was saying, there's something, there's something here. So I said to the wonderful teammate who was building this, I said, do me a favor. I want you to put a box called the Federal Reserve. And I want you to check the box. There are 12 banks, one headquarters, and then the branches for a total of 37 locations. I want you to check the box wherever... In, in any city where we have a branch or a bank or the headquarters, I want a check. And what we discovered is 34 of the 37 bank locations have riots. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's a pattern. <laughs> There's something here. Let's drill down. So we started with Minneapolis, and uh, we said, let's take the data of all the buildings that were harmed or burnt or businesses, and we'll map it. You know, we'll do a GIS software and we'll map where these businesses were and how close they were to the Federal Reserve Bank. And so the first one we did, there's a there's a street going across Minneapolis called Lake. And we mapped them. And one of the things we did when we mapped them was we drew pictures of where the opportunity zones were. Do you know what an opportunity zone is? An opportunity zone is a tax shelter mechanism created in 2018 to help the tech billionaires as they sold their stock avoid capital gains. So you can, if you're Jeff Bezos who sold $10 billion of stock this year, if you were to roll over your proceeds into opportunity zone investments and handle it in a certain way, you could avoid all capital gains tax. So this is fantastically profitable. Now, if you look at the riots, when I first saw how all the buildings and businesses destroyed along Lake Street 
were right at the bottom of the opportunity. I started to laugh and I said, you know, I was assistant secretary of housing. That's not a riot pattern. That's a real estate acquisition plan. So what are you saying? It's to, it's to cheapen the prices in the city? So, so I have a thriving series of small businesses, a lot owned by African American and Hispanics along a particular boulevard in the opportunity zone. If first I declare the businesses non-essential and shut them down, right? Magic virus. So first I declare them non-essential, so now they're in real trouble, right? Because they can't do their business. And then I have riots and burn and damage them, right? If I was really clever, I'd pull their insurance right before I did it. I don't know what the case was, but we'll see. So now their business is shut down. They're now hung on their debt, right? Whether their mortgage or their credit card. But even worse, now their building has been damaged. And of course, insurance doesn't cover all the repairs and fixing, right? So needless to say, it's going to be a lot easier and cheaper for me to go in and buy up all those buildings, right? Voila. It's called disaster capitalism. So we then mapped, we did Minneapolis, then we mapped uh, Kenosha, then Portland, and now we're doing a place in Ohio. And the, the patterns we're seeing, if you look at the clusters of where the damage is, just speaking as Assistant Secretary of Housing, those are, in my opinion, real estate acquisition plans completely, you know, especially when they come on top of declaring all those small businesses not essential and shutting them down or restricting them. You know, you, I'm sure you got a lot of restaurants in there. Yeah. So, for example, if you look at San Francisco, 49% of the businesses in San Francisco are expected to be out of business by the end of the year. Do you know how much real estate you're going to be able to pick up cheap on this? It's going to, it's phenomenal. Now, when you realize that if they sell their tech stocks high, they can pick it up really cheap, what's important to understand is this makes the economics of building the smart grid out in the Fed cities. Remember I said 34 of 37 cities have a Fed banker branch. So this makes building out the smart, smart grid around the Fed banks much cheaper, which I'm assuming you want to do if you're going to come out with a crypto system. Okay. Okay, so Mr. Global is now coming to the point where... And can you explain who's Mr. Global? Yeah, so Mr. Global is my nickname for the committee that runs the world. The defining characteristic of life on planet Earth is our real global governance system is a mystery. And think about it. It's phenomenal we live on a planet and we don't demand to know how our governance system really works. But instead, it's a secret. So, you know, I have a lot of high-octane conjectures, Dr. Fur would say about who and what that is, but for now, we'll call it Mr. Global. So Mr. Global is now implementing robotics. That's one of the new technologies that's really starting to make an enormous difference. So can you label that? That's okay, so, so, so here's our robot, and here's our human. And, of course, the question for Mr. Global is, you know, which is more efficient doing what? In other words, if I'm supposed to manage the planet and all the natural resources and harvest it to my benefit and make sure, you know, my risk is reduced, how much do I want to use robots for and how much do I want to do, do humans for? 
Now, the brilliance of hooking everybody into the cloud with a crypt system, a crypto system, is with AI and software, I can have the humans teach the robots through the AI and software how to do all their jobs. And in fact, I was at the Aspen Institute in 2017, and I was having a discussion with with a venture capitalist, you know, sort of billionaire type, and he looked at me with these amazingly dead eyes, and he said, look, honey, you know, I can I can take every company completely automate it with with software and robotics and and fire all the humans. We don't need them anymore. I've never talked to anybody who didn't understand the riot part, because uh-huh. that's a very typical old game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially in poor neighborhoods. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, do you want me to continue with this? So we have we have the. Mr. Global at the top. And good morning. Welcome to uh, a partial program, Olive Tree and Lampstand Ministry Radio Church program. God causes all things to work together for good to those that love Him. We, uh, someone through the night, came and turned off our power on the outside of the building, which started a just a we we had an uh, outage here in Johnstown, anyhow. So. Because the power was down in Johnstown, Windsor, whoever decided to uh, turn up power off to the main building, it really didn't work on their behalf because the power was down. Anyhow, we finally got XL Energy out here, and they let us know that the power was restored, and just shortly after it was restored, we found a problem. Someone shut off the main breaker. We've uh, worked with the... uh, agencies to go ahead and make sure it doesn't happen again but I'll go ahead we are transmitter is presently down there's no 
power to the transmitter, but we are on the, uh, we are streaming, and for the next 45 minutes, I will go ahead with today's program. So we apologize for the problem. XL Energy, Windsor was out. Portions of Johnstown were out of power, but everything is being restored. I want to begin with, um, it really, this kind of threw everything off today on one hand, but on the other hand, it's actually better that this happened because for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to be able to present to you some interesting, at the end of the world, in the time in which we live, at the time where a God is beginning to the war with the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness, we are in that war. It was predicted that at the end of the world, in the time prior to Christ's return, second coming, and also at the time where Satan's rulership over the nations and governments of the world, the people of the world, is coming to an end, is going to, there's going to be great conflict. And this is what the world presently, what we're witnessing. This is what we are viewing. We are viewing not just nations against nations, not just a war between races. We're not watching only the famines, the end of the world famines that were prophesied by Christ in the book of Matthew, in Luke, other verses in the New Testament. The, the end, to, end of the world famines, we're not waiting for these famines to begin. They are in motion. The famines have begun. And the famines, the great famines that start at the end of the world will begin before a seven-year tribulation period. And we have already begun the great famines of the end of the world. We are, we are witnessing, we are involved in, uh, we are part of the scenario that Christ said would happen at the end of the world. And the famines would begin before the tribulation. There would be stress, distress, anxiousness. There would be birth pains, a time of sorrows before the tribulation begins. And we're in that period of time. And the Lord in and Paul the Apostle in Second Thessalonians chapter two, right around verses uh, four through twelve, there was a thought that the Christian people at the in Paul's time in the early years of the church, there were people that were saying that already the hardships of the end of the world had come. And Paul stated that, no, don't listen to these people because certain things have to come before the end of the world tribulation. And 
he was referring specifically to in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He wasn't talking about the time in which he lived. He was saying that the hardships that would come at the world, at the end of the world, there would be something that would identify, uh, spiritually speaking, to the churches of God. Paul was addressing the believers in Thessalonica. He said that one of the main sign, one of the great signs, a spiritual sign at the end of the world would be what he termed apostasy, falling away from Christ, the things of Christ, the important doctrines of Scripture. There would be a great abandoning of what is important to the Christian people in their Christian lives. Sound doctrine, theology, knowledge of the end of the world, eschatology, and the history of what would happen in the following 2,000 years prior to Christ's second coming. The hatred through time, but the hatred especially at the end of the world, at the end of Satan's rule, toward the believers of Christ internationally. That would be a great sign. And in the churches of God, all seven, there would be apostasy. There would be a distancing of God's children from God. They would distance themselves from the very God who saved them. But Paul is talking even more uh, succinctly, uh, intricately. Uh, he's identifying more perfectly exactly which portion of the Christian churches in which the apostasy would be the most noticed and most effective. It would not be in the big, big churches, the old churches that have existed for thousands of years, hundreds and hundreds of years, a thousand years plus. Rather, the great apostasy, the evidence of the apostasy would take place in the young church, the youngest brother of all the seven churches, the youngest brother being the Laodicean church, the Laodicean church whose location is not in Europe, not in Central Europe. It would be not in Asia, not in the Middle East. The seventh church, the young brother of all the churches, would be located in America. They would be a young church. They would probably, their lifespan would be very short. It would probably be about, a, I say maybe a 200, maybe just a, about a 200 year period of time. The evangelical churches, they came into the scene and it's real hard to, to, to say, well, it, the evangelical churches came into existence in America in 1620 or 1640 or 1680. But two, three hundred year period of time, there was a shift 
in the thinking of Christian people that had come to the United States of America away from the traditions of, the, of Catholicism, Thyatira, of the Greek churches, Pergamos, of the Lutheran churches, Sardis, but more in a personality. Uh, the personality would be much different from the personalities of, this, of the previous six churches. The Laodicean churches, the new church, the young church, a dynamic church would be in the United States of America. We would separate ourselves as a young church, an evangelical church, from the traditions of the big churches. We wouldn't continue with the big tra traditions. We wouldn't continue with the the uh, clothing, the way that uh, you have within the Catholic Church, the Orthodox churches, Lutheran churches. We would do away with that. We would be a little, much more free. We would pick up more of the flavor of the culture rather than the flavor of the personality of the older brothers. I see it clearly. It's just uh, having a problem sometimes presenting it the way I should. The young, youngest of the seven churches is the, are the evangelical churches of the United States of America. This is kind of a... There's talk about this with, within Christendom in this country. Uh, it, it, people are, are... Many people are discussing how these seven churches, how they fit, where they fit, where they're located... Uh, did they cease to exist 2,000 years ago? Do they exist, each one, in a prophetic timeline through the ages? Do the all seven churches exist at the end of the world? And all of a sudden, in Christendom, now there is more focus on these seven churches, each one having a completely separate personality. The conduct of each of these churches is set different one from another. Literally, you can say that these churches each have their own personality. They all have their own strengths. They have their own flaws. And the Catholic Church is not a dynamic church. The Lutheran churches are not dynamic. The Lutheran churches are more sound doctrinally than Catholicism. Catholicism based very steeped, still in, entrenched in uh, their traditions. And the Greek churches too. Less idolatry in Greek churches than in Catholicism. <clears throat> less, less idolatry in the evangelical churches than in the previous churches. The reason I focus on the Laodicean Church, the Laodicean Church, the Evangelical Churches of America, we are not only unique, but we are very gifted spiritually. The Evangelical Churches of America, including which would include the Fundamental Churches, very sound doctrinally 
to a great degree. The Pentecostal churches that are um, very charismatic in the gifts. Then you have the within the evangelical churches something new that has arisen in the last 50 years. Uh, a messianic uh, spirit where a love in the evangelical churches for Israel more so than in Lutheranism, Catholicism, the Greek Orthodox churches. But in America, in the evangelical churches, there has been a, since 1948, there was a revelation when Israel came into existence once again. Many within evangelical Christianity in this country recognized Israel's return to the scene as being very significant of great importance and fulfillment of prophecy. And within the evangelical churches, there, be, there was a slowly a, you might say, a, a love, an opening of the hearts to evangelicals by God because once again prophecy had been fulfilled. And from that time, from the mid the early 60s and forward, in the 50s it began to move. There was a momentum in the acceptance of the prophetic of, of the prophecy of Israel becoming a nation. It was accepted, it was understood, and they knew it was significant. They didn't the Christians at that time didn't realize the full significance other than this means Christ's return is near. In the fifties they did not see a move of the Holy Spirit in America with the baby boom generation. Many in the Baptist churches, these the older denominations, even within the Pentecostal churches, they didn't really initially see the hand of God moving. It would take years for them to, to, to see and recognize a move that was a phenomenal move. The Holy Spirit not directing... Uh, not not pouring his spirit upon the Hispanic community or the black community or the white community. Uh, even there wasn't really a great, great move in the Asian cultures until the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s came into existence. <clears throat> but the But God had gone to the different races, but now the focus in the 60s and 70s with the baby boom generation children, the focus of the Holy Spirit was upon the baby boom children. This wasn't directed at race so much as a age. Uh, uh, there was a group, an age group, born after World War II. Also, as time went on, it would be there. It would, people would recognize that it was toward young people, but it was not just the young people as a whole. But within that group of young people in the United States of America, 
this was something something occurred that did not happen internationally. The focus of the Holy Spirit was on the Jewish, the young Jewish people and the Gentile people, the same age group. But this time, after Israel's being born, Israel also would have its baby boom generation, which would occur in Israel. Yes, these young kids would eventually fight for Israel's existence. But spiritually speaking, the spiritual move to the Jewish people did not happen in Israel. It did not happen in Europe. To the Jewish people, it happened in the United States of America. It happened in the baby boom generation period, from about a 16-year period, from about 1960 to 1976. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit targeted the young Jewish people, male and female, Gentile children, male and female, and out of that would come what we have today, a messianic movement, a the, the messianic movement, the the, the true, the pure Messianic movement are Jewish people, Hebrew people, that met Christ. These would be the Messianic children. And then many Jew, many Gentile children would uh, born again kid, uh, a born again group in the baby boom generation would gravitate into the uh, more of the I guess you could say the Jewish thought in the Old Testament and how it pertained and feathered into the belief within the Jewish or the Hebrew Christians and how they realized that once again God was moving with the Jewish people in this country to prepare them, many of them, to return to Israel and carry the gospel of their Messiah back to the Jewish people. Israel was not excited about this. The people of Israel, the government of Israel, was not excited about this. The parents of the young Jewish people that met the Lord, the parents were not excited about this. But it is a move of God. It was part of God's plan for our time. And God was once again going to carry through these Jewish people, these young Jewish believers, God was going to carry the knowledge of the Messiah of Israel. He would work with them and renew their minds, renew their thinking, and reveal to them how they fit in the, in the plan of God, the program of God. And the focus eventually in their thinking in the Jewish people, these young Hebrew people, the focus would be toward Israel as a, a nation and toward the Jewish people as a people, as the people of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, the, and these, many of these young people began ministries. Lola, 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 Lola Zevet? Can't remember his name. He passed away here 15 years ago. Zola Lovett. He takes his ministry to Israel. Many Christian evangelical ministries have moved into Israel. 
uh, very difficult for them to exist. And then many Christian evangelicals throughout the churches in America, the evangelical churches, have made trips, their congregations here right out of Will County. Uh, the uh, uh, members would take trips to Israel, support Israel out of Texas, all over the West Coast. There was a a assisting of Israel as a nation and praying for the Jewish people as a people. Many of the uh, Christian people have been told they don't need to evangelize the Jewish people. Well, that's not according to the teachings of Christ. Who did Christ come to first of all? The Messiah came to the children of Israel. And the religious uh the, the religious world of that time did not accept Messiah and they still to this day do not accept anything pertaining to the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua or Jesus Christ as we, we in the West um, you know, Gentiles but one thing that many of the the Israeli government they are, they are very aware that it is the evangelical churches that wholeheartedly support Israel and have uh, through the involvement in the political world have put pressure on this government to assist Israel in the wars that Israel had had to fight uh, going back prior to Ronald Reagan into the 70s and Ronald Reagan the evangelical vote would go to him if he would build a military and support Israel. And he did, to a degree, fulfill those two wishes. Now, so with the, in the Jesus movement, you had a messianic move began in this country. It began here on the Front Range of Colorado. I was involved with a messianic move, move in, to a degree, in California, uh, it's nationwide, and not only nationwide, but because of the baby boom generation, it has gone to South America, it has gone to Africa, the thought of the Jewish people returning to their Messiah, young people internationally being saved by their Messiah, by their by Yeshua, uh, this is the nations don't know what to think about it. The governments, they don't like it. But it's in the Bible. It has to happen at the end of the world. The Jewish people internationally have to be presented with their Messiah. Whether they accept it or not, it's a private individual matter. But nevertheless, the churches of God, we are to present the Messiah of Israel to the Hebrew people. And then God will determine within the lineage of Abraham, of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there are those that have been ordained to eternal life. All of them? No. There are those that God has called, like in the time of the early apostles, Paul. He was ordained to eternal life. And who did the Lord go to? Firstly, to the nation of Israel, and then eventually, 
Christ even stated that he had another flock that he needed to bring into the fold. And this began to occur with Peter initially visiting the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. It was going to be a curveball. It was going to be a uh, something that was going to take time for Peter to, to grasp. And he talked about it. Then the Apostle Paul, he was called as an apostle. There were, there were many people already taking the gospel, the knowledge of who Messiah was to the children of Israel. But Paul was called to take the knowledge of the Messiah to the Jew, Gentile people, and uh, which he did. And then, eventually, in the time in which we live, you have in the body of Christ, Hebrew and Gentiles. One, by natural birth, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. Those adopted, the Gentile people. And like I stated last week, this was a very, what I presented was very profound. I have to say it was profound because the children of God have to understand Jewish and Gentile. Paul made it clear he there was a conflict between the Hebrew Christians and the Gentile Christians. There was conflict. There was kind of an enmity. There was a, a battle between the two. And Paul in Ephesians really addressed it. He said, no. To the Gentile people, the Jewish people, the promises of God in Romans came to the children of Israel first. But then to the Jewish people, he said, but God stated that he was going to bring in a people that were not his people, and he was going to call them beloved. It was actually in the Old Testament. I think it was Hosea. So Paul was trying to tell the two groups, there cannot be animosity between you. The God intended to display His greatness and His glory and to expound on how He's magnificent. He brought into this world and chose out of the nations of the world a family through Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. This was not this was a promise. It was a it was a there were covenants between Abraham and God and Isaac and Jacob and the Jewish people through Moses eventually. There were covenants. And God said, These covenants, these are my people, these are the children that I chose. I will not repent of that. I have engraved them on the palm of my hand. But then Christ said, I have another flock I must bring in. He had intended to adopt out of the nations another family. This is the magnificence of God that as a God, Israel saw Him in His, magn in his magnificence. But they couldn't see how great he was until after he had brought in another adopted family. They couldn't see how great. And God did say that 
he would also pursue the nations because in eternity he would have Hebrew and people of the nations that would be part of his eternal plan and were part of and are part of his eternal plan. So now you have a family that is, was born into the plan of God and you have a family that was adopted into the plan of God. And the two children are treated equally. They each have different uh, uh, functions. They have different ministry. But they, nevertheless, they both have access to all the riches of God. And there is no respecter of persons with God. He treats his, his original... I gotta take a quick call. Yes, Brian. Okay. Okay. Uh, are we still streaming? Okay. Okay, I'm gonna go over there. For those who are listening on streaming, I have to walk away from the microphone for a few minutes to do something. Please hold tight, and I'll be right back. Uh, go to the bathroom, have a cup of coffee. I'll be right back. Okay. Be on this call.
and to the KHNC 